read the opening verses of chapter 1. We are indeed in verses 5 through 7, but let's read uh, the opening verses also this evening. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. For life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from every sin. May God bless to us that reading of his own word. Now, last Sunday evening in our course of expositions through this lovely book of First John, we had come, you may remember, to verses 1 through 4 after an introduction of the previous Sunday evening, and we had begun to look at the purpose for which the letter of First John was written. And we had seen in particular last Sunday evening, but in answer to the question, what is Christianity? John had given us a beautiful and succinct and resounding answer that Christianity, from beginning to end, is nothing other than Christ. And we looked at the person of Christ and the life that is in Christ, and finally at the joy uh, to which the knowledge of Christ should lead us, that your joy may be full, is where we ended in verse 4 last Sunday evening. Now, before we take up our theme for this evening, let me again emphasize and underline the truth of verse 4, that the purpose for which this lovely book of 1 John was written, among other purposes, was that God's people might abound in joyfulness. It seems wherever we touch upon the scriptures, such as in the Psalms, there is a melody arises from the sacred page. It fills the psalmist's heart as the psalmists rejoice in the work of God's creation and redemption and his sustaining of his people and his loading them, his people, with every benefit of the covenant of grace. And it seems to us as Christians in the New Testament that that swelling note of joy in the Lord and praise to him reaches its very crescendo in some of the letters of the New Testament and particularly it may seem in the book of Revelation 
the final book of the Bible, where you remember that beautiful scene where the whole host of God's redeemed people are in the glory, in praise and exaltation, and sing together what we know as the Hallelujah Chorus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and might and dominion and power, and so forth. The joy of the redeemed. And this joy, as John has been telling us in the opening verses of the epistle that is the subject of our study, results from men and women experiencing the life that is in Christ. What is Christianity? It is Christ. It is the life that is in Christ. It is the joy that results from personal experience of the life that is in Jesus. And this joy, as we saw, is a profound thing because man is brought into living contact with, living fellowship with, the living God himself. We saw him, says John. We heard him. We touched him. We searched carefully into his teaching and found that all his words were the truth of God to us. And we were persuaded indeed that he had come out from God. And it is upon that foundation that the Christian's joy is to be built, that your joy might be full. Now the passage before us this evening then continues on from those thoughts that we left in verses 1 through 4 last Lord's Day evening and comprises verses 5 through 7. Now let me say immediately that we will be able to look at verse 5 in detail. We will begin to look at verses 6 through 7. And God willing, next Sunday evening, we're going to return to their great themes and explore verses 6 through 7 and going on through 8 and 9. It is a consistent passage there uh, next Sunday evening as we look at the various areas John describes in those very lovely and very rich verses. Now, John before us this evening, then, is beginning to expound the message of the gospel. He has introduced to us the person who is at the center of the gospel. What is Christianity? It is Christ. It is life in Christ. It is joy in Christ. Now he begins to break down the constituent parts of that message of the gospel whose focus is the person of the Lord Jesus. And he says, this then, in verse 5, is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I am suggesting to you this evening that, in fact, in these verses, we have two leading thoughts. The character of God in verse 5, and what we have called the company of God, or if you prefer it, fellowship with God, in verses 6 through 7. And together, they comprise the substance of the message of the gospel. 
Now ask yourself as we begin to look at these things this evening, do I believe the gospel? Am I committed to the gospel? And if so, do I really understand what the message of the gospel is to which I have been committed? Because this is what John is unfolding for us. Now, first of all, in verse 5, there is the character of God. This, then, he says, is the message that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, what he is doing, in a real sense, is unpacking the preacher's task. And he's made it easy for me in defining the very nature, as we'll see, of the gospel. But more than that, he's unpacking the Christian's task, the church's task, your task this evening if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, my task. The message of the gospel consists in this, that God is light. And John's task, as he sets this out, and yours and mine, therefore, after him, is not to add to that message, as we'll see. It's not to detract from it. It's not to try to change it and bring it into line with what men believe today in this generation or the direction in which the church is moving sometimes erroneously. It's not to dilute this message, but it's to receive it and to transmit it on to others, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, there are three things, I believe, that John would be telling us directly in that statement that he makes so powerfully in verse 5. Three things. And the first of these is this, that the very nature, beloved, of the gospel is being defined for us. What do I mean by that? Well, he's telling us, surely, first of all, that the gospel begins with God and the character of God. But the Christian gospel, the message, is primarily about God. And if this hasn't jumped out of the page, at you as you read it with me, may I lovingly suggest that it ought to have done. You see, we're living in a day and an age when, if you ask the average Christian, what is the gospel about? He'll say it's about the salvation of sinners. In other words, his answer is it has something to do with men. And you know, this is one of the marked differences between the age of the church in the generation that we are living in now and the age of the church in previous generations when the whole counsel of God's word was much more richly and consistently preached to God's people. Because in those earlier ages, if you asked a Christian man or woman, who was taught in the Bible, what is the gospel? He would have said, it concerns the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. But do you see the difference of emphasis? It consists in the glory of God 
through the salvation of sinners. Now surely what jumps out at you then as you look at this text, first of all, is that, you see, John doesn't begin the message with a concern about us and our needs and our longing for fulfillment and so forth. Like so many presentations of the gospel today and some evangelistic methods that are current, even within our own denomination. But John starts with God. The message centers on him. As you find all through the New Testament, we've seen this in the preaching of the apostles in the Acts, that they center on what God is and what God has done to secure the salvation of a chosen people, an elect race. And as you find, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as that great letter begins, God, who in sundry times and in diverse ways had shown himself to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. And the emphasis, rightly, is upon what God, has done and is doing in revealing himself to his chosen people. The reality of God in blinding glory, as we'll see in a moment, in infinite holiness, this God who is light, unapproachable, all that God is, is the gospel. What is God, says the fourth question, of the Shorter Catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what God is. And that, beloved, is what the gospel is. And we should begin there. You see, the fundamental truth then about man is to be seen in the light of God's character, the fundamental nature of the gospel. Now, the second thing, surely, that John tells us from verse 5 is this. The very nature of God is also defined. Not only the nature of the gospel, but the nature of God. Who is this God? concerning whom the message is going out that John is delivering. Who is this God? One who not only gives light, you notice, as we read in the book of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light immediately, but one who is light. In other words, just as God is love, and this is emphasized in the epistle later in chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16, so this God is in himself light as the very essence of his character and the very essence of his being and nature. And here we have the lovely pictorial language of John that occurs all through this great first book of John. And light, we are surely to understand, represents glory. And it represents truth. 
and it represents holiness. And there's little doubt that judging from the context, the prime emphasis of John here in this verse, in using the imagery of light, is to emphasize these things, the glory of God, the pristine truth of God, and above all else, the holiness of God who dwells in unapproachable light. And if you want to put it very simply this evening, think of right in connection with light. That which is true, as distinct from that which is mistaken and in error, that which has to do with purity and holiness and righteousness, we can think of that light of God's holiness as seen in the person of the Lord Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. When you remember, he said on one occasion, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And as he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, And you remember how in his ministry the contrast came out again and again as it does in that third chapter of John's Gospel when Jesus said that men will not come to him because they are afraid that the light will expose their evil deeds. And Jesus said men love darkness rather than light but he who practices the truth comes to the light in order that his deeds may be recognized. And God is like that. In blinding glory, his holiness is ineffable, his purity is without any limitation, and his truth knows no bounds. To the point, John tells us, that in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, there is nothing errant in God. There is no flaw in him. There is no shadowiness in God. Now ask yourself, why is this here? Why does the gospel start here with the character of God? Well, you see, the answer is simple, isn't it? Because we are saved by beginning to see ourselves in the light of the holiness of God. And isn't this what is so wrong with so much so-called evangelistic preaching in our generation today? Men are not encouraged to see themselves as vile in the sight of God, as plunged into all kinds of darkness and error and wrong thinking and moral wrong living. But when we begin, when John begins, with the emphasis in the right place, we see around us that the whole world is in darkness and is on the broad road that leads to destruction and has turned away from the narrow way that leads to life. And the first step, beloved, on the road to salvation is that I as a sinner should see myself as falling short of the glory of God. And that's what I need. As the Apostle Paul says in one of his writings 
to stand in the blinding revelation of God's holiness and see oneself as the chief of sinners. Do you realize, I wonder this evening, that that's your condition? You are darkness. You live by nature in a world of darkness. But Christ, in Christ alone, there is truth and light. And that what I need above all else is a gospel that starts with God and drives me to my knees in despair and says to me, you can never fit yourself for fellowship with one who is in the very essence of his being, unadulterated light. But that may drive me into the arms of Jesus who says, indeed, I am the light of the world, but there is a way of reconciliation by which you may come to know me. So the second thing is that it teaches us of the character of God. Now, the third thing is this, that it shows us the true nature of the error that John was dealing with. Now, you remember that we talked about this error in the first of these expository sermons and again a little last Sunday evening, the error that was known as Gnosticism. And this is undoubtedly one reason why John is so rich in imagery, as we'll see all through this letter, light and darkness, love and hate, and so many other things. Because, you see, the Gnostics argued, as I reminded you, that to be a Christian involved you in coming into the realm of mystery. They taught, remember, that there is the material world on the one hand and the spiritual world on the other, and the material is inferior and unworthy of God and to be avoided and eschewed by Christians. And that Jesus, therefore, could not have become truly incarnate because for God to be united with us, with a human body, with something that is material, was simply unthinkable. But only as you graduated in this realm of superior knowledge, knowing that the material and the spiritual can never mix with many other teachings allied to this teaching, only as you entered the realm of Gnostic mystery and became in a superior way enlightened in this knowledge that they professed to have, could you begin to know God. Now you can see why the imagery of light dominates this epistle. Because, you see, some had sought to conceal Christ and make him difficult to, to reach in their conceit. They had sought to spread darkness where there was light. And what John is saying to us in verse 5 is this, that the image is satisfyingly clear. There is no need for this superior knowledge that these teachers of heresy would propound upon the church. Light penetrates everywhere. There is no shadow in us. There is no need to be in doubt about what the true gospel is. As the light shines, we could say, in the depths of space, it reveals to our looking eyes the galaxies and the constellations that exist there. Wherever light penetrates, there is no shadow. 
And without light, there is no vision and no health and life. And what John is saying is that the true faith is like that. It's not like Gnosticism. It's not like the errors today that abound in the so-called Christian cults that take us into the areas of mystery again. These are alien from the full truth of God. But according to John, there are no mysteries. There are no secrets to hide. All is out in the open. It's perspicuous. It's plain. It's clear. There's no need to spread darkness where all is lucid and obvious and plain. The very nature of the gospel is found in the character of God that distinguishes this message from all others that falsely claim to be the gospel. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The true nature of the gospel, the true character of God, the true nature of all unbiblical error that seeks to bring in mystery where there is none. Now do you see what he's saying in verse 5? Now let's look even though we do so briefly and in an introductory way this evening at verses 6 through 7, what is the implication of this teaching in verse 5? Well, it has some very practical implications for your life and mine this evening. If we claim, he says, to have fellowship with this God who is light, yet we ourselves walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now, isn't that interesting? As we've seen, light reveals, light makes known. And God, therefore, in that imagery, is desiring to be known, as he's already explained to us in the word fellowship, as we saw last Sunday evening. Why has Christ come and Christianity appointed in the world in order that we might have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. God desires to be known. But if we claim that we do know him, that we do have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness and do not obey the truth, then there is a big, big problem in our lives. And we want to begin to look at that this evening. The kind of fellowship we have with him is determined by God's character. The kind of fellowship that we have with him is determined by God's character. Now we're going to see, and I just throw this out for your thought for next Sunday evening, and I'm not going to deal with it tonight. But if you look at verses 6 and 7, and then at verses 8 and 9, and finally at verse 10, you notice that they all begin with the same words. If we claim, or if you're using the King James Version this evening, if we say, and what is happening here is that John is saying, if we are truly in the light, the fellowship that we have with him is compatible with the character of God. But there are those who are in the church 
who are claiming or saying they have fellowship with him, who are living in three different kinds of ways. In verses 6 and 7, they're walking in darkness, which is libertinism, as we'll see. In verses 8 through 9, they are saying that they are without sin, which is escapism. And in verse 10, they're even claiming they have not sinned ever. And that is perfectionism. And next Sunday evening, we're going to deal with those three ways in which false believers are in the church, claiming to have fellowship with God, but the character of their walk with God is not in keeping with the character of the God they profess, because they've fallen into libertinism and escapism and perfectionism. And each is set out, and each is condemned, and each is then corrected, as we'll see next Sunday evening. But tonight... I just want to share three thoughts from verses 6 and 7 that arise. Now look at them with me. First of all, fellowship with God is possible only in light. In other words, if we say we know God and are living in darkness, beloved, it's nonsense. It cannot possibly be compatible with fellowship with God. And the walk there means a lifestyle continuing in godliness. But if our life is continuing in moral impurity and moral wrong that we have deliberately chosen as a lifestyle, whatever we may be saying with our lips, we are lying in our lives. It cannot be to walk in darkness and to claim to have fellowship with the God who is light. But you say that's so obvious. Why, Pastor, stress it? Is it so obvious? I read in the newspapers only a year ago the supposed conversion of one of the pornographic kings of our generation. And the Christian community was very excited about this supposed conversion. Yet the only change I read that was discernible in this man's life was that in the centerfolds of his pornographic magazines he began to put scripture texts alongside the other offensive material. And when he was confronted by a Christian brother he said, oh, but I see no need to change my morals and convictions because I've become a Christian. And his religion was nothing other than fire insurance. And so it was in John's day. There were those who believed that they may profess the true religion and live as they like. But there is no connection with ethics and religion. They are two separate and distinct spheres, and never the twain shall meet. And you see, that is the reflection of the Gnostic heresy again. And it was a continual battle in the early churches. Deeds have no bearing on my faith in Christ because the material world doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual world. 
and how I act in my body, which is part of the material world, is inconsequential. And John's answer is, God is light. And our theology, beloved, must shape our morality, or else that theology is worthless. And so the implications you will notice as you come through this book with me are laid out in great detail. If we walk in the light, in verse 9, look, we confess our sins. In chapter 2, verse 3, look at it. We will obey his commands. In chapter 2, verse 4, we will love one another. In chapter 2, verse 12, we will be able to overcome the evil one. In chapter 2, verse 15, we will not love the world because the love of the Father has been put within us. If God is light, our fellowship is with light and not with darkness. And that is the first truth. But the second is this. Our fellowship is with one another possible only in light. Do you see that at the end of verse 7? We have fellowship with one another. Now, the question is often asked, you know, can I find good fellowship in this church? Some people make that one of the reasons why they join or don't join a church, and it's a very good biblical reason. Can I find good fellowship with God's people in this church? And you know, whether that fellowship is present or absent, the fellowship with one another is determined by asking another question. Am I, are you, walking in the light? Because if that is not happening, you are going to be distant from God, and so am I. And we are going to be distant from God's people as well. And I've noticed something that's very interesting, and I commend this to you. Often, the problem is our own problem, that our fellowship with God has gotten off base, because we are not where we should be spiritually. We are not with others where we should be spiritually either. That's why you find, as I reminded you two Sunday evenings ago in chapter 2, verse 19, John writes with pathos, and some have gone out from us because they were not of us. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that everyone who leaves a fellowship is out of fellowship with God and therefore out of fellowship with God's people, but what I am saying is but very often the problem lies in ourselves. We can only have fellowship with one another when we are walking in the light. And when we discern differences and difficulties with the brethren or with a congregation, the first question we should ask is, are we off base with God? Because we'll certainly be off base with God's people before long, if that is what is happening. And thirdly, as I draw to a close, 
Forgiveness of sins is only possible as we walk in the light. Look at the end of verse 7. As we walk in the light. But you may say, well, isn't salvation dependent not upon walking in the light, but upon being saved by grace? And of course, I must say it is. But if we are saved by grace, we are committed to repentance and restitution in our lives for wrong that we have done. And so you see, the truth is, but the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin only as we walk in the light. And to know that we are truly saved and are truly experiencing the grace of God involves a commitment to walk according to God's word and to live according to God's ways. Now, you see, if that mark is not in us, what we have is not persuasion that we are in Christ and in the light, but rather presumption that we think we are where we ought to be, but in reality we are not. And as I close this evening, I want to remind you that what John says is not if you do not walk in the light, it is if we do not walk in the light. And throughout this section, as you may have noticed this evening, the pronoun is we and not you. And the assumption is that it's possible for people to come into the church fellowship and make a profession of something, but in practice to deny that profession by their lives, and they are in the church. If we say, if we claim, if we say, and the test, beloved, all through the New Testament is never profession. It is always practice. And if the practice does not coincide with the profession, what we have is presumption and not biblical assurance of salvation. As I finish, do you know this God who is light? Are you tonight walking in light in your life? Because the flip side of the coin is that what you may have is not salvation, but presumption. Back to the first principles. Only with John's emphasis can we be sure and assured of our salvation. This is what God created us for. This is what God redeemed us for. This, beloved, is what he's preparing the glory for us in order that we might have fellowship with the God who is light, inapproachable, who is holy and pure and true. Holy God, we praise your name this evening, the fellowship of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this exposition here tonight and pray that indeed the very timely lessons of this passage may abound in the lives of all of us. For Jesus' sake, amen.